Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us and the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of, holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 75. This is God's word. Lord, we ask that as we come to hear your word, you would meet with us that you would speak to us through the story of Zechariah and through his song and through your servant John who comes to bring your word. May our hearts be open to receive all you have for us. By the authority of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 In 1843, Charles, a 31-year-old, London author had become popular from his first publication. But that success, however, was short-lived. He started a family and soon wasn't making enough royalties on his first book, so he wrote another book, and it failed dramatically. He was financially devastated. And after he heard his, pregnant was, after he heard his wife was pregnant with their fifth child, he knew something had to change. So he began writing what he was hoping would be his best book. He sent the book to the publishing company in secret, not telling any of his friends or family because of his failed attempts from his last book. But the publishing company responded, this must be a joke. He began to wonder if he had another failure on his hands. To make matters worse, through a series of unfortunate printing issues, the book ended up costing him more money to publish than it could have made him. What he once held as his ticket of hope had become a growing disappointment. He feared another failure would be sent out into the world. He was longing and waiting for a change. For many, the end of the year can be filled with joy, lights and carols and Christmas movies, when for others, it is a time of financial stress, anxiety, and a reminder of the absence of the very things we long for. Advent can often be a time of painful waiting. Henry Nouwen said this, for many people, waiting is an awful desert between where they are and where they want to go and people do not like such a place. Today, we're continuing in our series, Advent, a doxology in the darkness. And as we together look through the songs surrounding the arrival of Jesus, we realize that they are filled with waiting people. And specifically today, we look at the song of Zechariah and his waiting with his wife. Elizabeth. So let's go back to Luke 1, 5 through 7. 
In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they both were very old. Now, in Luke 1, 6, we learn that Zechariah is a priest. So it's safe to say him and Elizabeth are people who serve in the community and he in the temple. It says they were righteous. Being righteous meant this. They honored, loved, and loved God. They loved others, and they lived the way they were supposed to. So in theory, everything should be going their way, but it wasn't. And it says in verse 7 that Elizabeth is barren. She can't have children. And that they both had grown on to, have grown too old to even continue trying. So quick context on the society that Elizabeth and Zechariah were in. Someone with no children would have been viewed with something like this. Um, Elizabeth Payne is different from the modern viewpoint in one important way. She wasn't concerned with a self-fulfillment through her bearing a child as more so like how it is in modern times. Rather, in the ancient world, given the danger of having a child, the issue is the expectation of having heirs and building a family that can share in the responsibilities to make life easier or more successful. So when one didn't have children, it was seen as God not wanting to bless you due to something wrong you did. Joel B. Green, an incredible um, theologian and commentator on the Gospel of Luke says, Elizabeth was barren, thus unable to fulfill her role as a woman in society. And as a result, she suffered disgrace among her people, low status honor. Childlessness was a sign of divine punishment and source of shame. And according to Deuteronomy 28.15, failure to observe God's commands would lead to cursing the womb. And it was easily reversed this logic by insisting that the phenomenon of childlessness was always a consequence of God's curse, itself a result of disobedience. But this cannot be the case here. For this interpretive option expressly ruled out by verses 5 through 6, saying they are righteous. Now, since this was a common understanding and living, um, living this type of life in the society who believes that, it can be easy to believe yourself, God is holding back on me, God doesn't desire to bless me, and I must have done something wrong. And this story of Zachariah and Elizabeth sounds familiar, and that's because you've heard this story before in the first book, Genesis. In Genesis 15 through 21, we read this is Abraham's story. Abraham and Sarah wanting a child and too old to even try. The time has passed and they're waiting painfully for a longing to be met. And as they continue to age with no heir, no one to help them with work, food, or safety. For Abraham, having a child was to continue the purpose of his lineage, to bring a son that God would work with and to bring about a promised land. He longed for this child, but Sarah was old and barren. 
But even before Abraham, we learn this is the story of the scriptures throughout. On page three of the Bible, Adam and Eve long to be something more than what they are. They then long for a son to crush the head of the snake that deceived them. The story continues with the people of Israel longing for a land, a leader, a judge, a king, and a savior. And on each page as we go through, we see waiting for what is desired. And in the waiting, there is pain. This is the story of the scriptures. And when we read these stories, they sound familiar and repetitive, and we realize this is our story. We each have a longing for something. It's the human condition, waiting on something, and it hasn't come, especially during the holidays. And the close of the year, we might even say things like, new year, new me. Well, I hope that next year I can fill in the blank. And the longing is still there, and we are still waiting. And we don't know why. Daryl L. Bach says, both Zechariah and Elizabeth are at the heart of the bridge between the past and the present. Our pain may not be the absence of a child, but there are a myriad of things that can bring disappointment in life. Sometimes the answer to their disappointment is not clear. Whether it be the loss of a child to premature death, a financial collapse, dealing with a child who falls into calamity or serious sin, or an unfortunate accident, the hard times are not always self-explanatory. Advent is a time of waiting. It is the in-between of what we hope for and the retrieval of it. So maybe there's something that you are waiting for. Maybe this is something that you're going through right now. And the waiting game is hard. Maybe something specific is coming to mind now, whether it's a job, a promotion, a relationship, a child, recognition, a dream, or a home to belong to. Maybe you feel as if God is holding out on you. You carry the weight of guilt that he doesn't love you as much as he loves others. And with that comes the sting of comparison that says, well, I'm not like those people. So that's why God hasn't blessed me, although he's blessed them. When we are waiting for good things to come our way, isn't that the question we have? God, are you holding out on me? God, did I do something wrong? We'll continue in the text, uh, Luke 1, verse 8. It says, once Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. 
He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord and the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. So something happens to Zechariah. An angel appears to him in his priestly duties, promising that God is going to give him a son, but not just any son, a prophet. And Zechariah voices his doubt in such a big promise. In verse 18, how can I be sure of this? I am old and my wife is well along in years. Sometimes when we hear a promise of God, it sounds too good to be true, unrealistic, and impossible, or a glimpse of reality that just doesn't exist from our viewpoint. And in the middle of our waiting and pain, hope and faith just seem childish. childish. Zachariah is trying to be reasonable. Optimism isn't what he has. He is a realist. He responds with doubt. How can that even happen? Tyler Staten says this about doubt. Doubt is an event in the world that conflicts with the story that you believe. Zechariah's response should not have been one of reasoning the promise, but holding it with wonder, standing in front of an angel from God with inspiration on how God could deliver on this promise. How will he keep his word? With excitement, he could have said, I can't wait to see how it'll work out. But Zechariah lost his wonder. And then God makes a covenant promise with Abraham and promises him a son. And he says, get ready to have your son. And Sarah, Abraham's wife, overhearing says, so Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Tired of waiting, wondering if this promised son would ever come, she takes things into her own hands. You know the story. She gives her husband away, promising that she'll love that woman's child as if it was her own. So she first laughs at God and then tried to make her own plan. And she settles for less. Instead of wonder before God, she laughs and thinks, this must be a joke. This won't happen for me. So I'll try to figure out a more realistic plan, God. But in settling, she couldn't fix the longing in her heart that she was waiting for, and it caused more problems than salt. Ishmael was the son from Hagar and Abraham, and Sarah, now growing bitter towards each of them, still longed for her own child. And you look back, Adam and Eve in the garden and all of its beauty decide to take for themselves the fruit instead of trusting and waiting for God to come and remind them of who they were. They wanted to be more than and couldn't wait for the answer from God about why they couldn't eat from the tree of knowledge. God promises in the garden a son from Eve that will crush the snake's head who tempted them. And Eve waits for a son, but her oldest son responds with killing her youngest son. So Genesis, Genesis shows us a genealogy of sons who fail in their response 
to waiting, and each parent longing for the son to save them. And then from Exodus to Chronicles, they are waiting for a leader, a judge, a king. And time and time again in their waiting, they lose sight of what was promised, wondering if this Messiah figure will ever come. They try to control the situation for themselves, choosing their own ways in Judges, choosing their own king in the book of Samuel. So the prophets from Isaiah to Malachi remind the people of Israel of this son, this king, this prophet that will come and keep the promise of crushing the snake. But they are waiting and they are longing and they choose to respond with worshiping other gods because they cannot wait on the God of Abraham to keep up his end of the deal. In their waiting, they respond with taking, idolatry, and there is brokenness. What has been our response? Maybe like Zechariah, you are doubting. Maybe you gave up on your faith because in your doubting, you were waiting for too long, and God was too late. Maybe like Sarah, you're ready to take control yourself and try to fix things yourself. Or maybe you've already tried that and now you're left with the mess not knowing where to go. When we wait, we are tempted to trust ourselves, taking matters into our own hands. When we wait, we are tempted to trust idols like success, sexuality, and say power will give me what I'm waiting for. All of these are disappointments. And after we take each of these roads, we find out we are left with the same longing. We are tempted to define the answer for our longing that God is having us wait for. Jim Carrey said this, I wish everyone could get rich and famous and get everything they've ever dreamed of so they can see that that is not the answer. What is our response when we're waiting for what we are longing for? Despite our lack of faith, rebelliousness, and disobedience, God still honors his word. Even though Israel didn't trust, God remained faithful. Even though Sarah didn't trust, Isaac, her son, still came. Even though Zechariah didn't trust, John, his son, still came. Advent is the reminder. God will do what he says. Zechariah's song is a reminder to remember the story of God's faithfulness. So we come with the pain of longing and awaiting, and we hold our story before God, and we see his story of faithfulness. John B. Green says, this is the reminder that this is God's story. At this juncture, the solution to the the priestly couple's childlessness has been caught up into the larger need of Israel for the reign of its God. He has planned this before the foundation of the earth to redeem us, to bring peace, justice, goodness, and mercy, blessing us with love and forgiveness. And Zechariah, realizing at John's birth, That all along, no matter what we have done, no matter how much we have messed up, God wants to meet our longings of loneliness, pain, hunger, and cry for help. That there is a redemption. And in realizing God's response to mankind, Zechariah sings this song. Picking up down in verse 67. 
his father being John's father. Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness." The longing in the heart of Zechariah and Elizabeth was realized in the arrival of John. Daryl L. Box says this, Finally, God is gracious in seemingly mysterious ways. Sometimes we are deprived of something because God has better things awaiting us down the road. When we wait patiently on the Lord, he often gives us more than we imagine possible. Zechariah and Elizabeth wanted a child, but what they got was a prophet. And God's ways are set to his clock, and they are often filled with things that cause us to wonder as we rejoice at his surprises. When John was born, they saw the goodness of God on them, his mercy, and they saw they were blessed. Sarah says in verse 24 that God has done this for me and taken away my, my disgrace. But in the songs, they realize they are not the only ones saved from disgrace, but all of God's people will be redeemed. The longing in the heart of Abraham and Sarah was realized in the arrival of Isaac. Sarah says this in Genesis 21, 6 through 7. God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have thought that Abraham and Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And in the song, the covenant made with Abraham is brought up again, remembering his faithfulness. The longing of Israel is realized in the arrival of Jesus. From the verses of our text 69, it says, raised up a horn, which is a quote from 1 Samuel uh, 2.10. This is speaking of the coming king the coming king to bring war, and it's realized through Jesus. And the war is coming to defeat the enemy. And it wasn't Rome, but it was the first enemy, the accuser, the Satan, the snake in the garden. He has raised up a horn. A son will come to crush the head of the snake as it was promised to Eve. In verse 71, there will be salvation from our enemies. And who is the son that does this? This is Jesus his story. And in the longing of the world, we will all be satisfied in the new creation with King Jesus. Verse 79, it mentions this, by which the rising of the sun will shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to, to guide our feet into the path of peace. This is the promised land that Israel was waiting for. 
the land of peace, no more darkness, but the light shining on us, the light of Christ. This is the kingdom of God and the new creation, serving God without fear for the rest of our days. That's the country that I want to be a part of. The first part of the song shows us what God had done and all the promises and his faithfulness that he had kept. Raised up a horn from David's house, saved us from our enemy, remembered his covenant with Abraham. John B. Green says this, What will this child become? Speaking of John, Zechariah's song draws time to a halt in order to answer the question. The song reaches backwards in time to the words of the prophets, to the ancestors, to Abraham, and indeed to the character and purpose of God himself. This attempt to root current events in Israel's past depends only in part on explicit references to Abraham or the prophets. However, it is also firmly grounded in the interplay of the scriptural echoes present in practically every clause of the song. What John will become can be appreciated only against the backdrop of what God has been doing and how God is even now bringing his aim to the consummation in part through his human agent, John. And so the second part of the song shows us what God will then do. John preparing the way for Jesus, people gaining knowledge of salvation, to be forgiven of their sins, and light shining on us in the darkness. And notice that language is throughout the song. For us, our enemies who hate us, rescue us, enable us all our days. This song is not only talking about Zechariah and Elizabeth, but all of Israel and you, the reader as well. This is a song for you and I that we can see that God has been working throughout history of the world to bring about his glorious plan and as we wait for its completion. And when Zechariah sings this song, he no longer is waiting for a son, but he is waiting for Jesus, the greater realization. And similar, similarly, we are no longer waiting for a savior. Jesus was born, lived, died, and rose again. Now we are waiting for his promised return. The new creation, we are fully united with God again, and every longing is met in him. So notice that. Zechariah and Elizabeth have been waiting for a child, and the child comes, and yet they are still waiting because there is a greater longing for the king, for Jesus. So how do we wait? I will not bow to the idols of this day and age because I trust God is good and there is no one like him. That is a prayer that we can pray. Nothing else can satisfy me. I trust that only he can, and the desires I have are safe to give him. God, this is what I'm longing for. How can you meet that longing? God, this is what I'm feeling while I'm waiting. I can't do this much longer but I trust you. And I know that in you, I have strength. Like the Old Testament verse says, those who wait on the Lord, he will renew their strength. 
and mount them up with wings as eagles so they don't have to run with the horses anymore. Elizabeth, when she realized she was pregnant, unlike Zechariah, she immediately believes and in verse 24, leaves town for five months to prepare what God has for her. She offers us the alternative to doubt. And we can also believe and act on it physically, like Elizabeth did, and believing and doing the things that God has called us to do, preparing ourselves for what God will bring. Now, that was John's job as the prophet before, coming before Jesus, his job was to prepare people to, for the coming Messiah, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Um, it mentions in verse 76 John's job, and Green comments it with saying this, John's vocation is fundament, fundamentally theocentric. John will turn Israel to its Lord. John will go before him. That is the Lord. And so the people will be prepared for the advent of the Lord. So when we read of his birth, John's, and Zechariah singing about John's job, we can learn on how to wait from that. Preparing people, we can listen to the first sermon from John to learn how to actively wait. And it's this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When we wait, we learn from John to repent, for the kingdom is at hand, and we learn from Elizabeth to actively move our bodies to prepare what God will give us. This is waiting with an active faith. And in the dark, we can see the light. It's not easy waiting, but we have hope. There's a time to mourn, and I know that many of us are mourning today, but we mourn with a hope knowing what is to come, and our hope that Jesus is going to make things better even more than we can imagine, that his way of life and his gospel is better, and we can sit in wonder and awe, hoping that today, each day, would be the day he returns, and the worship team can make their way up. And when we're mourning, it's not that we want to pretend like it's not difficult, but that we would sit before God in reminder of the stories of his faithfulness, saying, you remain faithful to them even when it seemed like you were late. I know that you will remain faithful to me. I mentioned Charles, who wrote the book in London in 1843. Charles' book was not what he wanted it to be in the moment. The book was printed on red and green binding, and although it was beautiful, the reprints cost so much money, and he redesigned the book so many times, hoping that it would increase the sales. But in his impatient waiting, trying to control the outcome, he lost the money from the book reprints. Uh, but it did sell very well. Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol, was his most successful book and it made every one of his books after sell well also. He was even given the title Father Christmas because from that book was the influence on Western culture for Christmas. And even the colors red and green that were used for the printing of the book are attributed by some to why we have those colors for Christmas. The waiting was difficult, but the end was worth the wait. And I love the final words in A Christmas Carol, and I think they ring true for this story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. 
with Tiny Tim on Ebenezer Scrooge's back, he says, may God bless us, each and every one. This Advent, may you be reminded that Jesus fulfills your longing and desires to meet every longing you have, whether small or large. But beyond each longing we have, he came to do more than that. He has come to bless you with the forgiveness of sins, to shine light on those of us who are in the dark. And he has remained faithful to do so. So this Advent, in the time of waiting, in the time of mourning, in a time of pain, whatever it may be, what you are waiting for is on its way. And here at Zion, we don't just believe in hearing the word, but we believe in responding to the word. And like Elizabeth, we have an opportunity to come forward physically and actively move our body from our seats to the front, not that the front is some special area, but we believe we are embodied beings, and to, like Elizabeth, moving to prepare. God, I have been waiting. This has been difficult. I'm doubting, or I'm, I may be trying to control things, God. I'm going to actively step forward, God, and ask that you bless me, that you help me while I wait. That while I'm waiting, I would be reminded that you are faithful, you are just, you are good. Our story is intertwined with God's, and he desires to meet with us, to meet our longings, and to remind us he is faithful. Let's respond.